is a psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we grabbed that as our theme this weekend. And it's a fairly common phrase, taste and see. But if you think about it, it's really weird. It's not very normal because those are two different senses. And when you taste something, it doesn't actually look any different if you're talking about food. It doesn't look any different afterwards. But for some reason, when you taste, you're more fully experiencing something, right? Like, we can use this term in the very literal sense, like, I do not like sushi. I think it looks disgusting. It's slimy, and there's all sorts of weird, look at you shaking your head. It looks gross. It is my husband's favorite food, and we have been married for 15 years and dating before that, and I do not like sushi. We've gone for his birthday dinner, and I get the teriyaki chicken. I don't like it. I know what it looks like. I don't like it. But we went to a friend's birthday a couple months ago, and we learned how to make sushi, which I'm all about. That sounds super fun. Just don't make me touch the slimy fish, but put it on there for me, and I'll roll the seaweed. And you know, But I made it. But then in this like crazy, I don't know, lapse of judgment, I decided, well, I made this. I should probably try it. And I tried it. You guys, everybody's face around me is like, see? <laughs> and they were right. It didn't taste like it looked. It didn't taste slimy. It tasted clean. And I kind of liked it. And I can't even believe it because I'm like, how old am I? Like 37 years of vowing against sushi. But I've seen. My eyes have been opened. We can talk about it in a literal sense with food. It applies to compassion. So like... I was thinking about this. This is very applicable right now. Um, my husband, if you know him, has had back pain since he was like early 20s. And I was like, I did not marry an 80-year-old. I need you to carry the children with me. You cannot have back issues. But he had really bad back pain. And he's actually since kind of recovered. He's found yoga and all these things that help him. And he's doing a lot better. Well, I all of a sudden started having like major nerve issues in my shoulder over the last couple months and it's waking me up at night and I'm doing all the same things that he used to do and I was super had an attitude when he was struggling with it sometimes and now I'm like, oh, I see. I see. I have a taste of my own medicine, we say, a taste of my own medicine and I see. That's that same kind of phrase. This also kind of applies to like experiential things. So um, I was trying to think of the best way to quickly uh, explain this. If you watch Friends, there's this random episode where it's not even a funny, super funny one, but where Phoebe has never had a bike before. And so she gets a bike as a grown woman because she's like, I've never had my own bike. And she has it. And she's walking it over here. And she's walking it over there. And they keep seeing her throughout the episode. And she's just walking the bike. She's wearing the helmet. She's honking the horn. But they always see her walking it. And so finally, at the end of the episode, they're like, Phoebe, do you know how to ride a bike? And she's never ridden a bike. And so they get her on the bike. It's like my kids in a trampoline. And you can stand there at a trampoline, and you can be like, it's a rectangle, or it's a circle, and it's got springs, and I understand it. And here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go jump on it, and that'll somehow lift you. Or you can jump on the trampoline. And that's when you see. When Phoebe rode the bike, she's like, oh, this is so different than walking it around. There's some things that you don't know. You don't fully see unless you experience them. They are meant to be experienced. They're not just meant 
to be studied and dissected and figured out. The only way to see fully is to experience. So this weekend, we are going to be attempting to take a look at an invisible God. We are going to attempt to experience in order to see him more clearly. Um, one way we're going to do that is by looking at the person of Jesus, because the Bible says that he is the literal and tangible and visible personification of God. He is the way that we can see an invisible God. Um, if you look, oh, I'm supposed to do this myself. That's probably not going to work. Okay. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he, meaning Jesus, has made him known. 1 Corinthians 1.15 says, he is the exact living image of the unseen God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we're going to just be talking about a lot of stories that the Bible tells us about Jesus and his interactions with people, and we're going to see what that tells us about who God is and how he feels about us and what he thinks. Um, we're going to start with a story in the Gospel of John that describes a setting where Jesus is talking to someone, a very religious person, actually, and he's actually kind of exactly talking about this concept of coming to see something more fully, something that's invisible. So if you have your Bibles and you brought them, um, you can turn to John 3. I'll be reading it for you, too, so it's no big deal if you don't have it. But if you want to, turn to John 3 with me, and we're going to read a story about Nicodemus. And I have to set this up a little bit. It's really interesting the way that the Bible is written and the way that these letters that are written by people, this one happens to be written by a man named John, and the way that they write, I think sometimes I forget, this is a, a letter that was written to people, and it's a story that John, who was a man who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw him, he is writing to certain people to tell them something about this man that he knew and he walked with, and he's like, I have a purpose, I have an audience to, that, to who I'm writing to, and I want them to know something. And so just like you would do with any literary text, you actually can look at the way that it's organized the order in which he puts things, the way he words things and describes things, and you can figure out he has purpose and intent that he is looking to communicate through a lot of how he structures this book. And I, that will come into play a little bit because I think this is, I just can kind of geek out on English stuff like that. But um, what's really interesting as we go into this story in chapter three is, to set up the text a little bit, Jesus has been starting to make a little bit of a name for himself. He's been starting to do a few miracles. He's been starting to make a couple people mad because he's making some outrageous claims and he's doing th some things that are not culturally super appropriate. And so there's this buzz starting about him, but there's also some real excitement coming about him as he's doing some of these miracles and people are starting to talk about him. And right before we start our story in chapter three, it says, now he was in Jerusalem and many believed what he was doing and they believed in his name and they were all excited. And it says, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. And this is the part that's just interesting. It says, and um, because he knew, he himself knew what was in a man. 
So it's saying Jesus kind of knew their hearts. He knew they were a little fickle. He knew they were kind of excitable, whatever. He knew what was in a man. And then look how chapter 3 starts. Now there was a man. These kinds of things can be really telling of how we can read this text. You also might be like, Katie, you're reading way too much into this. But we might as well be able to read this story going, Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men. And this story I'm about about to read, yes, it's about Nicodemus, but it might as well be any man. This is the stuff that is in the heart of a man. Okay, so let's get started. So um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus is a very devout religious person of the time, of the Jewish religion. He is... um, Um, if you think about like the most perfect following all of the rules, leading in church, doing all the things right, you're like, that's Ned Flanders on my street. If you watched the Simpsons growing up, this is Nicodemus. He's very religious and devout and respected. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. John 3, 1 says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, so stop here and recognize the place that Nicodemus is at. He is hearing the buzz. He is somewhat intrigued and curious about Jesus. He's coming and saying, All right, I'll tell you what I can see. What I can see is there's something bigger than normal human stuff going on here. You're doing miracles. I'll even give you that you're from God. But he's also, you have to recognize the place that Nicodemus is in. The religious leaders of the day, we'll talk about why in a little bit, but they weren't super happy with all of the things that Jesus was doing. So Nicodemus is coming at night. He's a little doubtful. He's a little unsure what he thinks of Jesus. He's coming kind of representing all of them because he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Um, But he's coming and he's just like trying to figure Jesus out a little bit. Um, How many of us coming this weekend? I just want, the whole point of tonight is for us to just root into this weekend a little bit and take a little pulse of where we're at. How many of us have already seen some things of God that have piqued our curiosity, that have made us be like, all right, I think there's something a little bit more than just everything that I can touch and see here. I'm, I'm curious, I'm intrigued, I'm convinced. There's something more going on here. Um, how many of you have had moments of doubt where you're like, I don't really love what that... Uh, religion is doing over here. I don't really know what I think about all that crazy spiritual stuff going on over there. I'm a little bit doubtful. I don't really like how you're representing and saying you're from God. That's not really the God that I know. I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, When have you had moments, think, in your life where you have been convinced? I I used to be a lot more like, um, well, as I... I used to just more be like, yeah, I know, like the beautiful sunset, but it's a beautiful sunset. Now I feel like a lot more like sappy and inspired by things like the beauty of creation and go, what? There is something more. But I remember a conversation um, in high school that I had with a friend where she was like, can you give me something more than the creation thing? Because to me, that's just science. Like, just tell me, I don't even, I don't understand. And I said, well, Megan, like, 
what about our emotions? <laughs> like, we were about to leave for college and go to two separate places, and I was like, what is it in me that makes me so afraid to be without you next year? Like, how am I, why am I going to miss you? That doesn't make sense to me. That's not science to me. There's moments, and she was like, whoa, all right. That, that spoke to her, and we all have different things that have intrigued us at different times and stirred us a little bit, and that's just where Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. Okay, there's something more than I can explain here, but I'm also not totally sure. Um, so I think it's funny that Jesus or Nicodemus tells Jesus what he sees. Here's how I understand it. Sell me in. Give me the answers. And Jesus' answer to him is uh, verse 3, if you're following along. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think you're going to see as we read through a bunch of stories of Jesus and people that <laughs> he always has very random things to say to people that are not exactly what they expect. Um, two questions come to mind when I hear Jesus' response. If I was, when I was reading this and trying to prep, I was like, this is the first time I was reading this. What are the questions that I ask? What's the kingdom of God, and why do I have to be born again to see it? We're going to get a little bit more to the question of the second question, why do I have to be born again? What does that even mean? That sounds weird. We're going to talk about that more this weekend, tomorrow night. Um, but I want to talk for a second about what's the kingdom of God, because that sounds super weird. Um, but you'll notice that Nick doesn't have this question when, when we read his response in a second. This wouldn't have been weird to him. He had a very clear understanding and idea of what the kingdom of God was. Israel at that time was an occupied nation that was living under Roman rule. So they were not free people. They had been conquered, and they were living under a rule of Rome. So they, the Jewish people, very literally believed and were raised and grew up with this story of we have been promised, we the people of God, the Jews, have been promised that a king is coming, a political leader is coming, and he is going to take us out of here, deliver us from the tyranny of the Roman rule, and we are going to take over, and we are going to rule very literally in this world. We are going to be the people of God, and we're going to have a king here, and we're going to be the ones in charge. So Nicodemus would have grown up hearing stories of the promises of a king that was coming to deliver the people, the Jewish people, and let them have their day in the sun, their time to rule, and it was going to all be God-ordained because they were the people of God. So that's what Nicodemus is thinking. Um, I don't want to give away the ending, and we are going to talk about the kingdom of God and what Jesus really meant um, more throughout this whole weekend, but um, Nicodemus was missing it. Jesus was not talking about a literal kingdom and political rule reign. He was talking about a spiritual kingdom. Um, it sounds weird to us because we don't live with kings and that kind of rulership now, but if you think about it, we all have little kingdoms that we are in control of, that we rule. If you think about it in the tiniest sense, every kid has a little kingdom. It might just consist of their toys, but they are in charge of their toys. It is their kingdom. And as we grow, we have expanding places that we have influence and preference and um, control over, and these are our kingdoms. And the kingdom of God that we're going to see and talk about more this weekend and that Jesus is talking about if you, like, just to put it simply so it's not a distracting term for us right now, is simply the rule and the reign of God in a person's heart. And then a unified people who have all said, 
God reigns and rules my kingdom. God reigns and rules my heart. That is the spiritual kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here. And if we talk about it moving forward, that's kind of what you can think about so that it's not this distracting term. Okay, back to Nicodemus. Um, Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus in his response, there is so much more to see here, and you're missing it. Because you already have an idea of what I'm talking about. You're not even open to understanding what I really want to tell you. Um, and that's kind of the first next place that I want us to pause and think about as we come into this weekend. What have we already concluded about God and about Jesus? What are our opinions already? Where have we already conceded? I know everything there is to know about what Jesus wants to say to me, what God would say, who he is, what church is. Um, we might be so used to, just like Nicodemus, looking at something one way that we're not even open to considering that there's another way to view it, that there's more for our eyes to see, that we might actually have an, oh, I see, type of moment. Just because, just like Nick, we are already convinced that we, we get it. We know what he's talking about. Um, I was just trying to think of a fun way because it's Friday night. Um, to try to give an example of this. Um, I keep forgetting that I have my slides up here. Nope, I went the wrong way. How many of you, oh, oh no, oh, there it is. How many of you grew up with a calendar like this? Come on, don't date me. Yes, these, have you seen these? Okay, so I had some women test it. Go ahead and try it. Tweak your eyes and see if you can see what's on there. Anybody, raise your hand, shout out if you see it. I have a couple of these. You tweak your eyes, you kind of cross-fix them. Come on, it's Friday night. Just settle in and relax. See if you can see it. You're all trying so hard. It's so fun. I want to take a picture of you. Can you see it? Try this one. It is. I expanded it. I was like, come on. All right, you know what they do? Who doesn't know what they do? Okay, so there's this picture, and you can look at it. You can spend your whole life being like, that's a really pretty, I don't know, watercoloring of a bunch of colors. Or there's this thing that you can tweak with your eyes, and you see a 3D image come popping out. This one is a shark. And there's a huge old shark <laughs> that comes out. I know. It didn't work. It's a total fail. What? You've never been able to do them? I know. Well, just, you guys, no one's going to know. Be like, I see it. That's a shark. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to take it off because it will distract you. Um, oh, the other one was a guitar and music notes. But you get what I'm saying, right? We can spend so much time looking at one thing and not seeing what's really there. Um, and I think that that's the point that Jesus is trying to get to with Nicodemus. There is more to see here. So... Um, I love this, verse 4. I know we're only four verses in, but I promise I'm going to try to speed up. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I love this response because it totally shows us where Nicodemus' head is at. I feel like he is like, explain it to me. I don't understand it. You're clearly talking literally because the kingdom of God is literal, and I know that's coming. And I think he's probably grown up his whole life being like, okay, this person from God is going to come, and he's going to usher in the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God. I've been waiting for it. I'm excited. Maybe Jesus is it. And maybe that's why he comes to him at night, and he's like, they don't think you're it, but are you it? Are you the guy? 
I'm like, I'm kind of here, just give me some things to like make me for sure that you're the one that we've been waiting for. And I think that when Jesus says this, he probably hears it like, okay, so there's one more thing I have to do? So you are the guy? Okay, that's fine. Like, if I got to do one more thing, I've been checking off lists all my life because remember, the Jewish people have been thinking, we stay the people of God, we follow the rules, and when this political leader comes, we get to be on the inside of the reign of the takeover of Rome. So Nicodemus is hearing this like, all right, all right, I got to be born again. How do I do that? <laughs> one more thing. He's a box checker. He's like, all right, fine. Tell me, explain it. How do I do this? Um, as I was thinking about this, it was a little bit humbling because I feel like, if I'm honest, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but this sounds a little bit like a boiled down version of my earliest understanding of becoming a Christian myself. I pretty much heard it like, all right. I mean, if you take out the whole like Jewish takeover of Rome thing and just instead insert going to heaven, right, where God's home, where he lives, I kind of heard it like, all right, Jesus is this guy from God and he represents God. And if I want to go to God's home in heaven when I die, then I need Jesus to tell me what I'm supposed to do to get there. So I kind of come up to Jesus and I'm like, I heard you're the way to God. So just tell me what I, want, what I have to do because I want to go to your kingdom when I die. And that's pretty much the boiled down version of how I understood my faith to be and Christianity to be. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you are missing it completely. And so I have to believe that he has come to me in my life and been like, Katie, there is more to see here. You are missing it. So Jesus reiterates to him, you're still missing it. Um, we're going to look a little bit more about this second question. How do I not miss it? How do I see? How do I be born again? How do I even understand what you really are talking about? How do I not miss it? But I don't want us to run too far ahead on Friday night of retreat. I want us to stay here and think about that. I want us to consider, out, consider what Jesus is pointing out in this interaction and what we maybe have in common with Nicodemus because as you're going to see, this is the first of so many stories that John lines up one after the other of people missing it. They just totally, they come to him for one thing that they want from him for one way that they understand what he's about and what they think they're going to get from him. And he's always flipping the script on, him, on them and being like, you don't get it, you don't see. So I want us to sit here and think, what is keeping me from seeing? Um, I have two things that I want us to take away from tonight and just pause and consider. The first one that I see for Nicodemus is that he has a lack of belief in the spiritual, in anything that he can't see and can't measure and can't understand. He says in verse 7, do not marvel, Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus after he asks the second time. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Jesus is saying, why are you so surprised? You know the wind. There's a thousand examples around here of things that you believe that you can't see, that you believe without understanding. Why are you so slow to believe something that you don't understand from me. I do struggle with this. I really 
I don't like things to seem overly weird or spiritual or like I'm talking, I don't want people to think I'm crazy when I'm talking about spiritual things. So I try to just really make everything normal and explainable and measurable. I don't like to get all too swept up in, in the things that some people might go, she's a little crazy, she believes in things that are unseen. I just don't like things to seem overly spiritual, if I'm honest. That's a place where I get hung up and I struggle and I want to be able to explain it all. Um, but the bottom line is, if we believe in a God at all, then we believe in the unseen. And so it's not that far of a jump to believe this realm of a spiritual world, spiritual realities that are occurring, spirit in us. Um, if we believe that, if we believe in a God at all, then it's not that crazy to believe that he created us because the unseen is around us all the time. If, we, if, if there's any even hint of believing that there's a God, then we don't see him. So there's other things that could be unexplainable as well. Um, I think there has to be room to believe in the spiritual. There has to be room for mystery. We have to be a little bit okay with believing and experiencing things that we can't totally grasp or measure or understand. Um, Jesus calls Nicodemus rabbi, meaning teacher, and he'd basically concluded or come to Jesus and been like, okay, I think that you're like from God. You can tell me some good things. You can tell me some moral things maybe. Um, give me a few tips on how to live life. I think we can do this, especially when we don't really want to tiptoe into the weird and the spiritual of some sort. Um, and we can be like, well, I think Jesus was a good guy. And I, I want to like hear some wisdom from him. Um, but Jesus is trying to tell us, and he's trying to tell Nicodemus, there's so much more than that for you to see. Um, we were created with a spiritual side and designed to live out of it in relationship with a God who is spirit. And sometimes if we're not willing to kind of open our hands and be like, I might not understand it all, but there's room for mystery. I'm open to that, God. We might miss some things that God wants us to see. Um, so this, this weekend, I just want you to consider what kinds of things are you holding on to in a literal, tangible, fleshy world that you're like, this is all there is. If I can't measure it, if I can't understand it and fully grasp it, it's not really for me. Um, and second, I think what we see with Nicodemus is the thing that's getting in the way of him being able to see is actually his very own religion. Um, I think the most sobering part of this story for me, and really the first four, four stories in John, um, is how time after time, it's actually the people's own concept of their own religion that are causing them to miss seeing their very own God who has come for them. Um, in fact, we just, in our women's Bible study, read through Luke, and it's funny because there's all these times in Luke that the people say, who is this guy? Who is this man? But it's story after story where it's the religious leaders that are like, Jesus does something, and they're like, who is he to do that? Who is this guy? And then Jesus does something with the disciples, and the disciples are, are all like, oh, my gosh, who is this guy? But then there's all these random people that Jesus interacts with that shouldn't know him from anybody, and they're like, you are the Lord and the God, and I see it right away. Um, there's two stories right before this story with, with Nicodemus, I alluded to him earlier, that were really ticking some of the religious people off. Um, and I think they're really interesting because 
There are two stories right after the other where Jesus purposefully goes into a religious setting and he rejects something that represents their ritual and their tradition and their religion and he instead puts himself in place of it. So John 2, chapter 2, this is kind of a famous story. You've heard of Jesus turning the water into wine at a wedding, right? This was his first miracle. This was the way that he told everybody, I am beginning my ministry and I am not just a man. I am God. And what he does though, what the thing that we don't actually talk about all that much that just blew my mind when I was studying this is the thing that he uses to turn water into wine, they had wine jugs there, they were empty. He did not use the wine jugs to make more wine. He had the people go over, I should read it to you so that you know I'm not making it up. <laughs> Verse six, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So they were in this place holding this feast and they have these, they used to, in their tradition they had these jugs that were used so whenever they would go into a ceremony this was holy water and they would clean their hands and it would symbolize that they were clean and allowed to go into the, the ceremony that they were participating in. This holy water, these jugs that were meant to hold cleansing power for these people are the things that Jesus decided to use to turn into wine and demonstrate that he's now come and things are different. I think that's crazy. I think that's amazing. Okay, the next story, right after it, Jesus goes into the temple. And he walks into the temple, and they're selling things, and they're doing, the temple was the place where people met with God. And they did sacrifices, and that was the way that they knew in their tradition to come and be made right with God. And Jesus comes in, and he tears it all apart, and he says that they're doing things wrong. And when they challenge him on it, and they say, who do you, who do you think you are? Why do you have any right to do this? He compares himself to the temple. He says, tear it down, I'll rebuild it. They think he's talking about a building, but he's saying, I'm the new temple. I'm the new religion, <laughs> the new tradition, the new pathway to God. These are the two stories right before Jesus then comes into Nicodemus and says, you're missing it. You too are missing it. Um, if you keep reading, this is a theme that goes on throughout John. In fact, tomorrow night we're going to talk about another woman at a well who also misunderstands it. And her religion and her understanding of how things work is really what gets in the way for a little while of her being able to understand what Jesus is saying. The religion and the rituals and the traditions and the systems that the Jewish people had back then, they were tools they were methods and structures and systems. They were meant to engage or to aid in the engaging with God. But when Jesus came, his message was, you don't need those anymore. I'm doing something new and you only need me now. But they were so uncomfortable with that. They liked their structures and their systems. They liked their box checking and their rules. It made sense to them. It was controllable to them and they liked it. And so they missed the very God in front of them because of the religion that they were taught to worship him with. I read a book by Bruxy Cavey called End of Religion. We're going to wrap it up, I promise. You guys have been good sports. And he defines religion this way. Oh, back to the pictures. Any reliance on systems or institutions, rules or rituals as our conduit to God. He has an analogy in his book where he says... 
Picture a thirsty person and a cup full of water. And these thirsty people are coming, and there's all this quenching water inside this cup. And they come to the cup, and they start licking around the edge of it. And they're like, I cannot figure out why I am so thirsty. I know I have the right cup. I know it's got water in it. But they are licking around the edges, trying to quench their thirst. All their cups, like you could have a different cup. Some of the cups are fancy cups. Some of the cups are stripped down and you know plain. But all of them are just holding their cups going, I know I have the right cup. But they're licking around the edges, trying to get quenching thirst. Um, I'm not saying that there's not refreshment to be had from drinking of a cup, or even that a cup holds water and is helpful for holding water to drink, just that the cup itself is not the thing that quenches the thirst. It's the drink inside. And that's what Jesus is trying to say, Nicodemus, you're missing it. Um, the Bible calls this process of confusing um, the contents of a cup with the cup itself, or to make it a little bit clearer and not use so much analogy, a means for relating to God, a pathway for relating to God with God itself, it calls it idolatry. And it happens to well-meaning people all the time, and it happens to a lot of people in the scriptures, and it's what's happening to Nicodemus. And the reason that I know that is because Jesus ends his interaction with him with a really interesting story. Um, he says to him, we're going to finish up. i got to turn my page. Jesus is kind of berating him. How do you not understand this? I don't understand how you don't get this. Um, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, this might sound like a totally random thing, but this is a story that Nicodemus would have known. And there's a story of the Jewish people and the history that Nicodemus would have been raised with understanding in Numbers 21.9, if you want to look it up, where the Jewish people were bitten. It's a crazy story. They were bitten by poisonous snakes. They were complaining, and they were not trusting God, and blah, 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 whatever. They get bitten with poisonous snakes, and they're all dying. They are being infected with poison, and they are dying in the wilderness. And they go, God, save us. And what God does is he tells Moses, all right, take, he, he partners with Moses to save them, which he does a lot in scripture, and he tells Moses, take this staff, this staff shaped like a serpent, and hold it up at the top of this mountain with these people down below, hold it up, and whoever has enough faith to look up to the serpent, they'll be healed. I just want them to know that healing comes from me. Tell them to look up at the serpent, hold it up there, and they'll be healed, and they are. But what happens to the people is that later on, and as the story goes on, what you see is they make an idol of that serpent. They don't remember that it's God that healed them further on in the story. They keep going back to that serpent staff, and it has no power anymore because it was just a means to God. It was not God himself. And Jesus is coming right back to that and being like, you're still making idols of the traditions and the methods and the rituals that I gave you. You don't need them anymore. I'm here. I am the only pathway you need to God anymore because I am God. I am the water inside the cup you can just drink. Um, we're going to spend the weekend looking more at what it means to drink and to taste and to see and to experience God. But I do want us tonight to just consider the ways that 
we might be, we might have some hang-ups, like in Nicodemus. We might already have a pretty clear picture of what we think we're looking at and what religion says and what the Bible says and what Jesus says and what he thinks and what he thinks of me. And they might just keep us from seeing what God wants us to see. We might have some real tight structures and rituals and ways that we know this is the right way to read your Bible. This is the right way to pray. This is the right way to worship and sing songs. And it might just keep us from experiencing God. Um, so I'm going to pray for us. And I, uh, the band is going to come up and we're going to get to sing a couple songs. Um, you know, I think I meant to say this at some point in the night and I can't remember where it was, but I think worship and singing is sometimes one of those things where um, it's a way, it's not a way that we come and we study God. It's not a, come, a way that we come and learn about God. It is actually a way that we experience. It's like jumping on the trampoline. We have an opportunity when we sing these songs to just enter into a time where we're like, all right, God, I'm going to talk to you. And maybe these words are going to provide some words for me to say to you, or maybe I'm going to think of my own. Maybe I'm going to sing along. Maybe I'm going to sit quietly. But this is a time when we can meet with and experience God. So we're going to go into a little bit of worship, and then we're going to break for the night. Let me pray for us.